Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Paula Newton and for Julia Chatterley, this is First Move. And here's your need to know. Crucial call, Biden and Putin to hold a video meeting as Ukraine tensions rise. China consequences. Beijing promises a response over the U.S. Olympic boycott and travel tensions. The U.S. warns over trips to France as COVID cases rise. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Tuesday, a day when high stakes global diplomacy Take center stage. U.S. President Biden is set to speak with Russian President Vladimir Putin about an hour from now amid growing concerns over Russia's military buildup on the Ukrainian border. Now, the U.S. warning that it will impose tough new sanctions against Moscow if it invades its western neighbor. All this in the U.S. The U.S. announces a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics over human rights issues. The Chinese government warning of the harm this will do to U.S.-China relations. We have, of course, reporters standing by in Ukraine, Berlin, Washington, and Shanghai. We've got all of those angles covered for you, but first we want to take a check of those global markets. And a much better tone after last week's volatility. You see it there with European stocks higher for a second session. And this is the thing, U.S. futures, too, pointing to a solidly higher open after Monday's advance. Now, the Nasdaq is set to jump almost 2 percent as richly valued tech stocks that pulled back sharply last week now steady. Investors heartened by preliminary evidence that the Omicron COVID variant may not pose the significant health threat we all feared in the last few days. Now, major Chinese tech names, meantime, are bouncing, too, after Monday's drop with Alibaba. This is really interesting, rallying 12 percent, its biggest one-day advance in almost two years. The Hang Seng soaring more than 2.5 percent after falling to 14-month lows. China's decision to pump more stimulus into its economy, helping sentiment although major concerns over the health of property developer Evergrande remain. Yeah, I told you it's going to be a jam-packed show, so let's get started. We're going to go right to those drivers. We start with, of course, those closely watched talks between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. Due to start less than an hour from now, it is believed this will be the first time they have spoken directly since July. And the main topic, of course, will be Russia's military activities along that border with Ukraine. We are covering this on multiple fronts, starting with our senior international correspondent, Fred Plyke. And Fred, really good to see you. I know how closely you've been watching all of this for several years, frankly, not just months. Strategically, you could argue Putin has played a great hand, right? He's got the attention of the U.S. president. In terms of Joe Biden threatening the strongest of sanctions, do you feel that this could actually help broker some type of truce truce with Ukraine? 
Well, I think that's uh, that's that's going to be a, a very difficult issue to to broach, and whether uh, that's going to have that desired effect. But I do think that one of the things that President Biden uh, certainly has done, which has definitely reassured European allies, and I think to a certain extent reassured the Ukrainians ahead of this talk as well, is that he has actually spoken to the U.S.'s allies, and of course, Secretary of State Blinken also spoke uh, to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky yesterday as well to make sure that Ukraine, the U.S.'s NATO allies, and of course the U.S. itself are all on the same page. And with that, of course, that threat of massive sanctions does get a lot more teeth than if the U.S. were going it alone. You heard it uh, really, or we heard it in a lot of media uh, throughout the day from various European countries who are saying that that new internationalism certainly is making that united front of Western nations in NATO and, of course, also among the European unions a lot stronger since the Biden administration has taken office. So I do think that that is something that is very important. Now, the Russians, for their part, are saying with this talk of sanctions, and this comes from the spokesman for the Kremlin, he said, look, we've heard it all before. We've, we've heard about sanctions. The U.S. talk about sanctions all the time. The U.S. levies sanctions all the time. So they're sort of trying to brush that off a little bit. For the Russians, uh, Paula, they've been saying that for them, they want to speak about their own red lines, uh, that they have, of course, that first and foremost being Ukraine's possible membership within NATO. They say that that's something that for them uh, needs to be avoided. And generally, NATO eastward expansion, as they put it, of course, an important topic to the Russians as well. Of course, the U.S. has rejected any sort of demands by the Russians. NATO has done that in the form of the secretary general and the Ukrainians as well. So it certainly seems as though with that talk coming up, there seems very, very little room for any sort of compromises or common ground, Paula. Yeah, and yet that is what Joe Biden wants to try and find during uh, this meeting. Uh, Fred, we'll leave it there for now. Appreciate it, Fred Plaikin, for us in Berlin. Now, a senior U.S. official says President Biden will make clear on that call, quote, what the United States is prepared to do if Russia attacks Ukraine. Now, Russia has the capacity, of course, to mount an offensive as soon as next month, according to U.S. intelligence. John Harwood following it all, and he joins me now live. You know, I'm interested to hear what White House officials are telling you about their bargaining leverage here. Of course, we've seen these stronger sanctions or the threats uh, that to have those. They're on the table. Yet, you know, few expect the Biden administration to really impose them, let alone consider stronger military moves. Again, uh, stronger military moves if that ultimately comes to it in Ukraine. Well, look, there seems, Paula, to be zero chance that the United States is going to commit troops to uh, block a Russian aggression within Ukraine. Uh, so what the uh, Biden administration is trying to do and what Joe Biden will do in this 10 o'clock uh, v- virtual uh, conference call with uh, Vladimir Putin is both provide some sort of diplomatic off-ramp, something to uh, give some sense of reassurance to Vladimir Putin that the West is not seeking to uh, uh, increase pressure on Russia itself, but also uh, lay out initiatives that, as uh, Joe Biden said late last week, would raise the cost to unacceptably high levels uh, to Vladimir Putin. Now, the most severe forms of sanctions they could levy are to unplug Russia uh, and its uh, energy uh, companies from the international financial system. That would be a very grave step. Europeans have talked about that for several months. Uh, Nobody's pulled the trigger on that yet. We don't know uh, whether or not uh, uh, European allies and the United States would be willing to do that. Lesser sanctions would be uh, restricting the activities and the financial uh, wherewithal of uh, Russian oligarchs, for example. Uh, We know that previous presidents, George W. Bush, 
Barack Obama were unable to deter Russian aggression in Georgia and in Crimea. Uh, so Vladimir Putin's got the troops on the ground. He's uh, amassing uh, the capability of invading Ukraine, and Joe Biden's going to try to de de uh, deter that. Of course, there's a political backdrop here, which is that uh, the previous president, Donald Trump, did not want to uh, deter Russian aggression. Uh, Donald Trump had been helped in his uh, 2016 campaign by the Russians. He then uh, tried to uh, shield Russia from uh, uh, the investigations into the uh, hacking, suggesting Ukraine was involved, and he pressured the Ukrainian president to try to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. So in addition to the national security issues, there's a big political overhang. Of course, that pressure on Zelensky uh, triggered the impeachment of Donald Trump. Yeah, and some complex pressure, to be sure. I think when it comes to the negotiating strategy, though, employed by Joe Biden, I mean, I'm going to mention it, right, John? This White House tends to under-promise and under-deliver at the same time. There must be something they're looking for here in terms of a diplomatic off-ramp. Have you been given the outlines about what this might look like this afternoon? Uh, not in detail, but I think the suggestion from administration officials is that the off-ramp would be some sort of reassurance from Russia. You know, R Russia, in addition to um, outward aggression, uh, uh, exhibits its own insecurity about pressure from the West. And so Russia has been trying to uh, get the uh, NATO to promise not to admit Ukraine as a member. NATO does not want to do that. In fact, they've given a roadmap to Ukraine for how they could become a member, but some sort of um, a gray area in between there about uh, uh, indicating that the uh, NATO and the West is not trying to um, uh, intrude on uh, uh, Russian affairs. But that's not the proximate issue now because uh, uh, Russia is in fact threatening to, uh, to invade Ukraine and of course they uh, have committed aggression repeatedly over the years. So some sort of way of reassuring Moscow, I think, is the diplomatic off-ramp, but there's only so much they can offer. Yeah, and again, all eyes on uh, that menu of financial sanctions, if indeed um, the United States is going to outline those in more detail. John Harwood for us from the White House, appreciate it. Now, as if the White House wasn't dealing with enough, another big challenge for Biden, China. The country says the U.S. will, quote, pay the price for its wrongdoings after the White House announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. Listen. <laughs> Out of ideological bias and based on lies and rumors, the U.S. attempts to disrupt the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. This will only expose its malicious intention to the world and will lead to greater loss of moral authority and credibility. David Culver is live for us in Shanghai. Uh, the Chinese seem to indicate that they will have a more than just rhetorical reaction. Is there any indication of how they might retaliate? Please wait and see, Paula. Those are the words from the spokesperson at the foreign ministry. So they're not laying out any details, but they are assuring there will be countermeasures that will be put in place. As you said, that they want the U.S. to pay for its wrongdoings, pay the price, and that the U.S. shot itself in the foot. Okay, so what can we expect that would possibly be done to counteract this U.S. boycott of the Olympic Games? Well, it's likely that they're going to do something that will push ahead their ideological agenda, something that we have seen enhance over the past even 12 months as they've seen crackdowns on big businesses and you've seen really a, a scaling back of any sort of Western influence. And it could also be something that is, is very unlikely to escalate the tensions between the U.S. and China in the sense of 
they're not going to do any sort of sanctions or put any sort of visa restrictions, let's say, on U.S. diplomats. The fear there would be that the U.S. would do that in reciprocity to them. They put exactly the same sort of measures back in place. And so they don't want to go that far. But I think we can see, uh, expect to see at least, uh, p- potential influence cracking down uh, from the West, particularly from the U.S. There is some speculation even online here that maybe there would be a uh, withdrawal of of the upcoming Spider-Man film uh, that is supposed to be debuting around the world. Now, that may sound strange, but Western films have this, the Chinese market, to look forward to because it is the largest movie market. And, And to do that would send a message to the rest of the Western world that no longer are they going to be looking to the West for influence. That could be one way that they approach this. Businesses here in Shanghai, a few of them have told me, American ones at that, that they're expecting potential repercussions because of this. Maybe they're going to try to curb influence the businesses have within this massive market with 1.4 billion people and consumer base. It really remains unclear, but it's really unlikely that they're going to do something that's going to cause damage to either China's own businesses outside of the country or even uh, some of its own diplomats. It is also interesting to see, Paula, that they're pushing this ahead in state media because that was something that just 24 hours ago they were hesitant about when it was just expected that the White House was going to go forward with this diplomatic boycott. And now that it has in fact happened, you're seeing a lot more of a vocal stance in state media showing support uh, for China and it's really what they position themselves to be the victim in all of this. They say that these claims of human rights abuses in Xinjiang against the ethnic Uyghur Muslims are rumors, they're lies, and that the U.S. Mm-hmm. is using this, Paula, in their words, to politically manipulate. Mm-hmm. It is really interesting that it has made it to state media because it went from censorship, you know, a little bit more than 24 hours ago to now right. uh, using it to obviously stir that nationalist sentiment. David Culver, thanks. Really appreciate it. Now, these are the stories making headlines right around the world. The United States CDC is urging Americans to avoid traveling to France as a fifth wave of COVID infections builds. French French officials say protective measures will be tightened up. CNN's Melissa Bell is live with us in Paris with more. Melissa, I have to tell you, as a case study, France really is incredibly worrying. When I look at the vaccination rates, they're relatively high. And yet this is just before the holidays. More restrictions, shutdowns now, work from home being encouraged for as many who can get that done. And this is what's so worrying. Hospitals apparently being, again, overwhelmed. That's right, Paul, and you're right to point this out. France is one of those countries that has had a fairly strict system of a COVID pass to get into restaurants, bars, cafes since the summer. High vaccination rates, people really wear masks whenever they go indoors here. And yet those really remarkably fast rises, uh, more than 50,000 new cases a day on some days these last few weeks. And that tells you really just how uh, virulent this Delta virus uh, variant is. That's what's driving this particular uh, wave. And what we've seen, what the French authorities have said, is that by the end of January, if things continue as they are, hospitals will once again be overwhelmed. It is the sharpest wave, they say, of the last few. So these fresh restrictions, nightclubs, are closed from Friday, fresh measures inside schools, and most importantly, perhaps, given that it is the young that are proving so crucial in the transmission of this particular uh, virus at this stage, uh, vaccination that will be open to those under 12. Whether or not that will be enough is the key question. And you're right, this is just ahead of Christmas. The French economy can simply not afford to shut down. 
Yeah, and I want to ask you quickly, most of the time that we have, you know, you mentioned the fact that this is really spreading amongst young people. The European countries, some of them have not been that quick uh, to really vaccinate the young there. How's that program going in France? Well, for the time being, this has been open to people who are over 12. And you're right, those vaccination rates are incredibly high. But now the pressure is getting the young to get vaccinated. And what we've seen in other European countries these last few days is also a remarkably virulent Delta variant driving a fifth wave that is proving catastrophically dangerous and worrying for the weeks and months ahead in terms of its pressure on hospitals. Germany, one of those countries that's looking to perhaps vaccinate people on a mandatory basis. Austria has already announced that it's going to do it. That is the key, getting those not vaccinated, either because they're hesitant or have been too young uh, to get vaccinated in order to try and stop this spread, Paula. Yeah, and I especially appreciate that granular detail, because as I said, if you look at France as a a case study, it can worry uh, many of us quite a bit. Melissa Bell for us in Paris. Thank you. Now, the United Nations says more than 850,000 people in South Sudan have been affected by months of severe flooding. You cannot believe the video here. In Unity State, roads and villages are completely submerged, and thousands of residents have been displaced with little access to food and vital supplies. Officials say it's the worst flooding the area has seen in about 60 years. Now, in the next few hours, CNN's Clarissa Ward will bring you more on South Sudan's climate emergency. The UAE is shifting its work week to align with global markets. This is interesting. The Gulf state will now give workers Saturday and Sunday off and ask them to work a half day on Fridays. UAE workers used to have Friday and Saturday off so that they could attend Muslim prayers on Friday. Still to come right here on First Move, Nissan's ambitions, the carmaker takes on speedier rivals with an $18 billion move into the EV race. I speak to the chief operating officer and the global supply chain crisis. I speak to the head of the world's largest warehousing company and talk about tackling gridlock. And welcome back to First Move. All systems go for a strong open on Wall Street. Stocks set to rise for a second day on new variant. Hope still no evidence of serious illness. Such good news associated with this new strain. That's, of course, helping to boost airlines, cruise lines and other reopening stocks. Now, the CEO of Goldman Sachs is saying in an interview today that he's encouraged by what he's hearing about the Omicron variant so far. David Solomon says that at this point, the Fed's policy path will probably have a bigger impact on markets than any new variant concerns. Fed policymakers could announce as soon as next week that they are speeding up the process of removing pandemic support. Oil, meantime, an interesting story here. Trying to rebound after six straight weeks of losses, crude is up for a second day as traders monitor the latest health news. Signs that Iran will not be able to resume oil sales anytime soon as nuclear talks stall are lending support to crude as well. All right, we want to revisit one of our top stories here. Beijing threatening the U.S. with retaliation after the White House announced a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics over alleged human rights abuses in China. Joining us now, former U.S. ambassador to China, Gary Locke. He's also here to discuss the issue of global vaccine inequality. The former Commerce Secretary says the U.S. should not support intellectual property waivers on COVID vaccines. I want you to welcome you to the show, Ambassador, and we will get to that issue 
of vaccines in a moment. But first, I wanted to try and tap your knowledge on China here. Listen, the United States really hitting back here diplomatically. And yet this really brings us back to the issue of what do you do with China? Do you think anything like this will have any influence? Because what we have been discussing here is whether or not there will be a decoupling now, especially in the business environment between China, the United States and its other allies. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you, Paula. Uh, I think that the Chinese will find a way to symbolically retaliate against the United States. Uh, this is a, uh, the gesture by the United States is uh, an insult to them. Uh, but quite frankly, they're going to be focused on putting on a very successful games. And, and the truth of the matter is that very few uh, diplomats from the United States would have, would have been attending anyway, given so many of the uh, COVID restrictions uh, within China. Uh, but real diplomacy... Uh, really begins with people-to-people -people exchange, and that really means the athletes interacting with athletes from all around the world, including from China. And that's important that, that, that the athletes and the games continue on. Uh, that is important from an Olympic perspective, but I need to ask you about what this means a little bit deeper. You know, American business has had a quandary recently, whether it's Tesla or NBA, they're all taking a different path in terms of do you engage in China? Do you invest in China? That has to go part and parcel with what the Biden administration is doing here on policy. Listen, it's been a bit of an earthquake in the last three or four years in terms of these businesses doing, it, doing this. What would you suggest they do? Well, obviously, they're going to be balancing their own values as a company uh, against uh, their desire for increased markets, uh, more business, which also means jobs uh, for the employees back here in America. Uh, but uh, the United States has to stand up for its values. Ambassador, it has I'm to sorry. indicate. Ambassador, to I'm sorry to interrupt. You say jobs and it costs, but that's the whole issue, right? Should they really be courting China at this point in time or do you start to engage in that decoupling? Well, that's a, a judgment that each company has to make, but certainly America has to stand up for its values. And while the actions of the United States might make uh, relations, business relations with China much more difficult, I think you're already beginning to see some signs of a uh, decoupling, not, not the economic decoupling that others have called for, uh, but you're seeing China saying that they don't want to buy from uh, the United States. They don't want to be so reliant on high-tech goods. Uh, from the United States in case uh, an administration, Democrat or Republican, says that American companies can no longer sell certain types of equipment or technology or even corning glass that goes into cell phones. Uh, and so the Chinese are trying to say, well, we need to be a lot more independent of materials coming from China, just as we in America are saying, as, as demonstrated during the COVID situation, we don't want to be so reliant on critical supplies from China. So I think you're seeing in many ways all countries around the world trying to uh, uh, solidify their own supply chains, trying to make things much more, um, um, well, getting more things from their own countries. Mm -hmm. And as I said, we'll continue to watch that carefully. I found it interesting from our correspondent, David Culver in Shanghai, who said that one retaliation now might be actually not releasing the Spider-Man movie in China, which is really interesting symbolically, if not materially. Um, OK, we want to talk to you as well about the Biden administration. Uh, and you say the Biden administration is wrong to support IP waivers for COVID vaccines. You indicate that that it will put research and innovation at risk. Why? Because the WHO says it's time to move off that paradigm, right, that it's old and that it doesn't really serve public health globally. Well, first of all, the Biden administration needs to be commended for committing and pledging more than a billion doses of the vaccine 
uh, to other countries, especially the underdeveloped and poorer countries of the world. Uh, the world really needs about 11 billion doses. So all the countries of the world, including the United States, and especially the other countries that are wealthy, need to commit uh, and, and put all hands down now in terms of providing extra vaccines. The problem, though, is that, for instance, in, in Africa, uh, many of the countries are saying, please don't send us any vaccines. We have too, too many, because the problem isn't really right now insufficient doses of vaccines. It's the inability to deliver to the vaccines into the countryside, to store them, or even personnel to put the vaccines into the arms of the people. I mean, South Africa, which has actually been asking for this waiver of intellectual property, has been saying, please, uh, we, we have too many. We can't use them. Uh, they're they're going to go bad. The reason that waiving intellectual properties is a bad idea is because if you want people to continue to experiment, to invent, to do research and development, they have to know that the secret sauce, the, the formulas that they come up with will be protected and not just given away to a rival or a, com uh, or a competitor. Because why invest years and years and years of your blood, sweat and tears, your own money uh, into research and oftentimes the research doesn't work out. A lot of these things end up in failure before you have a success. So if, if you're just going to give away the secret sauce, the formula to your competitors, why is what incentive do you have to keep plugging away? The real issue is making sure that these drug companies give away licenses for free to even their rivals to manufacture the vaccines and distribute it around the world. And, and our companies, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, have been sharing the technology with trusted partners who they know will not then turn around and use the so-called secret sauce to develop vaccines or medicines for against other diseases or other pandemics. Right. And Ambassador Luck, we'll have to leave it there. I, I mean, I will note that, that they say that that's puts big pharma in the driver's seat at all times, something that uh, a lot of people have decided we need to get away from. I have to leave it there, though. Ambassador Locke, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And we'll be right back with the opening bell after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Yep, the bulls are back in action on Wall Street as stocks continue their comeback after last week's market volatility. Now, the buy on the dip market strategy seemingly back in vogue, at least for now. You can see it there. The Nasdaq is still down. We have to remember some 1% in December so far. And markets will be headline driven and vulnerable to any negative news on COVID at all. And of course, that all important Federal Reserve decision on tightening. Meantime, Bitcoin getting a boost from today's risk on mood. It's back above $50,000 right now. The cryptocurrency recovering after a 20% bear market drop over the weekend. Tesla, meantime, which fell into bear market territory Monday, is higher for the first time in five sessions. Tesla shares sank more than 6% yesterday on reports of an SEC investigation into solar panel safety. But it closed off those session lows. Now, in just 30 minutes or so, we'll remind you President Biden will begin a crucial video call with Russia's Vladimir Putin. As we've been reporting, Russia's military buildup on the border with Ukraine is likely to dominate talks with many in Ukraine and beyond fearing an invasion may be imminent. Matthew Chance is in Odessa in Ukraine right now for us. Uh, you heard yourself from the Ukrainian defense minister. He told you, we don't need U.S. troops here. We've got this. What we're looking for from the U.S. and the allies is that we need more support. Uh, are they worried, though, that even tacitly, if not publicly, 
the U.S. will agree to Russia's red line, that Ukraine will never be a part of NATO. I mean, they have to be worried about that, don't they? I mean, not least because um, the idea of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO right now um, is, is a long way off. Um, they, they haven't been promised membership of the Western Military Alliance. And part of that reason is because there is this ongoing conflict uh, underway with Russia-backed rebels in the east of the country. There are also all sorts of other democratic reforms that Ukraine has been engaged in. And until that, that reform process is completed, they don't really qualify for, for NATO or for, or for European Union uh, membership. But yes, um, the, the Ukrainians are concerned that they're going to get thrown under a bus, as it were, uh, by the United States in the interests of preserving international security. Because remember, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, is going to be you know, dialing into that video call with President Biden. And he's going to be assertive in his demands, which are for NATO, for, for him to get legal agreements that NATO will not expand eastwards uh, towards Russia's borders, which would, of course, include... Um, bringing in uh, Ukraine. And, and more than that, Russia now wants a guarantee that NATO military infrastructure, you know, sophisticated weapon systems like missiles, will also not be deployed to Ukraine uh, uh, because their concern is that, that Ukraine would become, if not a member of NATO, then some kind of forward operating base uh, for NATO countries. Um, I, you know, it, it's the response to that demand by Vladimir Putin, the response by President Biden, that is going to likely to determine uh, whether the military tensions that are, that, are, that are very real here in this region at the moment uh, ratchet up even further or whether they de-escalate. And so in that sense, this is a crucial diplomatic meeting and of course, you know, perhaps the most important foreign policy uh, meeting encounter that President Biden has had so far as president. Yeah, and Matthew, that sets the stage well. We are less than a half an hour from that meeting. Matthew Chance for us in Odessa. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, Japanese automaker Nissan plans to spend almost $18 billion pivoting its focus to electric cars. It says that half of all the cars it sells will be electric by 2030. Look at a calendar. That's pretty soon. Between now and then, it plans to unveil 23 new EV models and to dramatically reduce the cost of batteries. Nissan's announcement follows earlier green pledges by bigger rivals, of course, including VW and Toyota. Joining me now is Ashwani Gupta's chief operating officer of Nissan. A real pleasure to talk to you today. Okay, EVs, this is your future. You guys have set that out. Uh, analysts say, though, for now, that future remains Tesla's. Uh, that's what we've been hearing, in fact, on whether it's tech or infrastructure. H- how do you propose to compete on that level? A- and are you going to lean heavily on what? The battery technology price, the recharging infrastructure? What's the secret weapon here? Thank you. For Nissan, electrification is not for the first time. We are not starting from the scratch. In 2010, we were the first one to have the mass electric car. Uh, Moving forward, what we have announced is uh, $18 billion investment in product, in plant, ecosystem, and um, especially the battery. Why we are announcing this investment is Nissan believes in a natural shift to the electrification a natural shift of electrification can only happen if customer is big, making a natural choice. So the job which Nissan has to do is to become an enabler for this natural shift. And this enabler includes uh, battery technology. And that's why the battery cost as well as performance is important. 
Hence, we decided uh, to invest in the in-house development of all solid-state battery, which is going to be cost-competitive, but also high-performing battery. When you say cost-competitive on battery and also matching that with performance, do you think that will be a game-changer, or do you think it's just going to mirror specs that we're used to from Tesla and others? All solid-state battery will be the game-changer. Reason is... There are three things which all solid state battery has got the advantage. Number one, autonomy. Number two, the charging speed. And number three, the packaging. So today, the challenge to package the battery on the higher segments like D segment and the trucks uh, is always a challenge. But when we have the all solid state battery, because of its packaging, definitely we get a more space. So we do believe all solid state battery will bring a new way of uh, having the performance of the battery electric cars. I want to talk to you a bit about one of the constraining factors beyond batteries, batteries, and it's been chips, right? Do you see that shortage easing sometime next year, or or is this here to stay as a long-term problem? I would say that situation is getting better day by day because there's always a lead time between the decisions on the capacity investment and the start of the production. However, Uh, I do believe that this will continue for a while for a simple reason that this demand is not only driven by the automotive industry, but this demand is also driven by the non-automotive industry. So that's why we need a very strong uh, supply chain system to manage the demand coming from auto and non-auto. That's why we believe it will continue a little bit more. So a little bit more, 20, 2023, 2024, or beyond that horizon? We don't hope so. I think that FY22 should be the maximum. Okay. I want to talk to you a little bit more broadly about the uh, supply chain issues, not just on logistics, but on procurement. Uh, and then there's this issue of the problem in general. Some people say that it is easing. What do you guys see on the horizon? I would say, you know, when we say it is easing, it is always compared to what we were yesterday. Uh, And because the demand exists, and definitely everyone is going for capacity investment, uh, what investments were done 8, 10 months or 11 months before, we clearly see the improvements. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we have different incidents which always keeps the supply chain being disrupted. And one of the most important disruption came from the pandemic started with one market continue to the second market then third market so i think this is this is a this is this is in sequence and we do believe that we are getting out from one crisis but we get into the another crisis that's why we believe it is continuing however we hope with all the decisions which have been taken by uh, the suppliers to increase the capacity will ease out the situation soon when you say ease out the situation, how much do you have to factor in some protectionism that's happening in a lot of countries as well? I mean, look, this is highly complicated in terms of supplying parts for Nissan vehicles. How much are you actually monitoring that as well? I, I would say this year, uh, this year we are seeing uh, roughly 12% drop in our retail sales, mainly coming from the semiconductor shortages. And I think this gap will reduce next year. But I do believe the way the demand is increasing for the, uh, for the, for the cars, we will keep supply demand gap for the next year. Having said that, 
Uh, this supply-demand gap has also taught us a new way of manufacturing, the new way of selling, and that's where uh, I think the net revenue per unit, I would I would translate it into the profit per unit, is also improving because of the more leaner, efficient, and effective manufacturing and selling system. So yeah. let's not say only that supply is having only negative impact. I would say it is also having a positive impact on improving the efficiency. Yeah, and, and despite government incentives, price, as you know, be, becomes a barrier for many, many people in terms of the electric vehicle. On that, though, before I let you go, you didn't really bite on whether or not you'd be taking on Tesla and how. As I said, a lot of analysts saying that Tesla owns this game for some time to come. I mean, you know, uh, in 2010, no market, uh, no customer asked us to launch the battery uh, electric car. We did it. We did it to demonstrate that we have the capability to do that. Uh, and since then, you know, we were alone in the world to talk about cleaner environment. Now we believe, and I'm very thankful to the awareness uh, Tesla and other EV makers have made, thanks to them, the people are getting aware of, of cleaner environment. So we appreciate, we welcome the competition because it creates better options, better choices for the customer. And that's where uh, we, we believe that uh, thanks to Tesla, thanks to the EV makers, we are getting into the healthy competition, which is at the end good for the planet, good for the customer. That's awfully collegial of you, Mr. Gupta. We, we appreciate your insights here. And we will note that you did say that, look, the supply chain uh, issues will be here for some time to come. Ashwani Gupta for us, Chief Operating Officer of Nissan. Appreciate it. Now, next here on First Move, in the face of global supply issues that we were just talking about, we speak with the CEO of a company that's working to help the logistics sector thrive. America's largest port complex is holding off on slapping extra fees on importers that don't move containers off the docks promptly. Port authorities were threatening to make freight carriers pay an unprecedented daily charge of $100 for each unremoved container. But now they say progress is being made in reducing a massive backlog. Uh, now, meanwhile, the Biden administration insists it's working to tackle wider supply chain disruptions. Hamid Mogadam is the CEO of Prologis, uh, which develops and invests in the warehouses and other facilities that make up corporate supply chains. He joins me now from San Francisco. I will say they are propping up lots of different neighborhoods uh, outside of lots of urban centers here as well, where we see those warehouse facilities cropping up every Everywhere. Uh, straight up here, I have to ask you, some say supply chain issues are easing. Others say the crunch is here to stay. What are you seeing? I think both of those statements are true, Paula. I think the acute phase is easing, and I think it will. Uh, things will feel a little better after Christmas. But I think the fundamental underlying problems are going to be with us for some time. When you say the fundamental underlying problems, a lot of people talk about labor. We've heard about the issues, uh, certainly with trucks. I know it as well, though, that climate has been playing a role in this, too. What are you seeing if you had to list off kind of like the three top three or four problems? Well, on the demand side, you had a situation with COVID where demand fell off the face of the earth, manufacturing uh, shut down, and then there was a surge in demand. So basically everybody was caught. Um, in a surprise. And uh, and that's probably the biggest factor is the variability of demand. All these supply chains have really been optimized around a very predictable pattern of demand. And when you have disruption, 
like COVID, climate change, et cetera, uh, that raises havoc uh, with how things flow and creates capacity shortages. But on the supply side, you have a labor issue, you have a shortage of transportation assets, and you also have the assets that you have in the wrong places, like your empty containers are all on the on the consumption side of the market. So those are the three or four issues that will take longer to resolve. And, you know, obviously the ports, uh, Port of uh, LA, Long Beach are very uh, good visual because everybody talks about the 70 or odd ships that are waiting to get in. But really, you got to look up and down the supply chain and you'll see the problem in a variety of places. And I'm going to drill, drill down on that with you in, in a moment. But before we get to that quickly, when we talk about all the challenges that we just went through, how much do you see prices being impacted by that as well? Well, prices are being impacted uh, to a great extent by that. I, uh, I, uh, I'm not in the camp that thinks inflation is going to run away from us because of some endemic problem. Uh, I think inflation is going to run hotter for sure because of monetary policy, which is being tightened. But uh, but the supply chain issues are, are seriously uh, impacting the rate of inflation in the short term. In the short term. It'll be interesting to see what the definition of that is going forward. I want to get into the specifics of your business now. I, I'm curious as to what you're leaning into. Is it automation? Is it AI? What are you guys leaning on uh, to really smooth out a, a lot of those supply chain issues and obviously make it more cost effective? Sure. Um, we own warehouses. We own about a billion square feet of warehouses uh, around the world in 19 countries and four continents. So that's the part of it that we're working on. We're not in the transportation business or the shipping business or, or the trucking business, but our customers are. So we're trying to build more and more warehouses in the key locations, which are the consumption markets. You know, the thing that doesn't get talked about nearly as much is that there is a shortage of warehouse space because all these goods that are coming in need to go somewhere because before they're deconsolidated and sent to uh, either homes directly through e-commerce or through stores and then homes eventually. So there's an acute shortage of uh, warehouse space in this country, particularly in places that you'd want to have them, major metro areas. And the regulatory environment around building more warehouses uh, is getting tougher and tougher every day. So we we have a pretty significant land bank, and we're trying to bring on that capacity as quickly as we can in in the right markets. We also are trying to address the labor issue for our customers. Uh, we launched about three years ago, way before this, uh, a prologis uh, community workforce initiative uh, that's designed to train um, 25,000 people uh, within two remaining years of that program. And we're going to scale that up because 25,000, even though it's a pretty significant number, is is only scratching the surface. So we're really planning to expand that program over I, time. So and, labor and space where we're focused. Yeah, on. I don't. I don't have a lot of time left, but we are looking at some video right now, though, of what I was getting to with the automation, with the robotics, with the AI. Sure. Quickly, how much more are you investing in that? Uh, a lot. Uh, automation is ultimately the answer to the labor shortage. And a lot of people have talked about automation as being the threat to labor. It's not. It's a way of augmenting the uh, productivity of the labor that you have. Yeah, and hopefully take a lot of the drudgery and the hard part out of a, a lot of the work so more exactly. people can be using their brains as opposed to their brawn. Uh, Hamid Mogadam, thank you so much. appreciate your time.
You're welcome. Thank you. And we will be right back with more First Move in a moment. Welcome back to First Move. Intel shares are among today's early session winners. Shares of the chip giant are rallying on news that it will take its self-driving car unit, Mobileye, public next year. The deal could value Mobileye at an eye-popping $50 billion. Paul LaMonica is here who's going to tell us why this actually sounds like peanuts in comparison. It's funny because we're used to obviously talking about Intel in terms of chip shortages. This is a completely different unit here. Yeah, definitely. Their self-driving uh, technology unit competes with the likes of uh, Qualcomm and NVIDIA, which obviously Intel competes with them in many parts of the chip world as well. But Paula, I think what's interesting here is that Intel bought Mobileye for just, just $15 billion. So if they are able to take it public at a $50 billion valuation, that is a nice return on Intel's investment, Intel is going to retain control of the Mobileye unit. But I think a lot of people on Wall Street are looking at this as potentially something that could give Intel some momentum, which it needs, because it really has lagged in terms of financial performance, stock performance, and buzz compared to Qualcomm, NVIDIA, and then also AMD, which has really had a resurgence under Lisa Su and has started to take some market share from Intel. Yeah, and Paul, it takes us further down that road, right, to use a term where these cars are like mobile tech units, especially when it comes to their reliance on the development of chips, right? Exactly. I mean, any Tesla or Rivian or Lucid or any electric vehicle from the likes of uh, the big automakers like GM, Ford and Volkswagen, it's going to depend on the hardware, the chips, and then obviously software as well. But this is a much more complicated manufacturing process than an old gas guzzling car. So companies like Intel with Mobileye are incredibly important, a very vital part of the automotive food chain, if you will, supply chain going forward as more cars go electric and autonomous. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of things to keep track of with that EV uh, market component. Paula Monica, good to see you. Appreciate the update there on Intel. And that is it for us. I want you to stay with CNN for more coverage of the crucial diplomatic call between the leaders of the U.S. and Russia that is getting underway any minute now. Connect the World with Linda Kincaid is up next. And good news, Julia is back with First Move tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.